Kevin McCarthy still on the brink. Plus, Joe Biden offers his solution to the border crisis. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cup, Philip, Phil Klein, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, I mean, of course, listening to a National View podcast. For some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we are back exactly the same place we were when we were recording Tuesday morning, which is Kevin McCarthy didn't have the votes to to be speaker, but we didn't know what was going to happen next. And I asked on Tuesday whether uh, you would vote for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, We have Phil's with us uh, today. He wasn't here Tuesday, so we'll hear from him freshly on this question, but you, Charlie, and I were yes. So having watched the last three days and McCarthy scuffle through 11 uh, votes, lose some altitude, not a ton. I actually, I probably would have expected more of a loss of, of altitude, but he he's ticked down one or two at the same time he's been wheeling and dealing. And, um, you know, as we speak, there, there, there are some reports he's apparently telling people there's a final deal, uh, with, with Chip Roy. Um, but, but, but certainly they're closer to a deal than they were on Tuesday. So the question to you, would you still vote for Kevin McCarthy if you're sitting there in the well of the house on the 12th ballot? Yes or no? No. Uh, I know. He he no, loses Doherty. He's down to uh, what one ninety nine. Yeah, I I would I would I would I'd be voting for Justin Amash, who former congressman <laughs> who volunteered, showed up and just started walking around and said he would he would take the job if if uh, and run it in a nonpartisan way. Um, yeah, I would I would I would not vote for McCarthy until at least until Chip Roy is ready to do so. At this point. Uh, because I think the, right. the join the Roy is, caucus. Yeah, essentially, I think Roy is getting meaningful extractions uh, about the rules committee that are a step towards decentralizing control of the of the floor from the leader, and, and I think mm-hmm. the that's been a bad development uh, for Congress for decades, and. I hope to see it reversed the same way uh, Yuval Levin does. And maybe this is a step towards it. Phil Klein, you're the well, well of uh, the house and you're representative Klein. Do you I, think, I think I'd be working the floor to try to look for another candidate um, and probably voting. All right. No. Phil's working it. I'm working it to find another candidate and saying no. I mean, my fundamental problem with McCarthy, it kind of comes down to why Hamilton begrudgingly supported uh, Thomas Jefferson, Mm -hmm. which is that I just don't trust or like people that have just literally no core and no beliefs in anything. And Mm -hmm. I just trust anyone like that. He was Mm -hmm. Mr. Tea Party when the Tea Party was in, in charge there he was mr uh you know maga when he needed to be on january 6th trump was responsible for what happened what then a few weeks later he's at mar-a-lago i just don't really trust something because you don't really know the way that the winds will blow over time 
Mm-hmm. And you kind of need somebody as a leader who who is trying to, who has some positions and some core at all. And I see none of that with McCarthy. So he's just going to get pushed around by his caucus. Um, so I'd probably be no in while trying to encourage someone else to who can get uh, support who has some actual conviction about something. All right, Charlie. So, so McCarthy's support in this podcast is just cratering. He has uh, zero votes at the moment. W- where do you come down? Well, as before, I don't especially care, but I would vote for him and move on because I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters who is the speaker. And I don't see it as Phil does. I want a governor to have strong ideological convictions. I want a rank and file member of the house or the Senate, but I think leadership positions where you're corralling cats are different. I actually think that Kevin McCarthy's not standing for a great deal is a strength when you are trying to manage over 200 representatives from different parts of the country. So how's he doing on his primary function of corralling cats right now? Yeah, well, that's a fair fair <laughs> critique, although it's a different one. My uh, rejoinder would be that no one else seems to be prevailing either. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing with McCarthy, this is what I argued last time, so I suppose I'm where I was before, is a function of the Republicans' small majority in the House and the ideological breadth that is on display, not of McCarthy himself. I don't believe that if you find someone else uh, that you're going to change the underlying dynamic. Uh, and I should say that while I have a great deal of sympathy for the Yuvalovin position against how the house is run i'm not convinced that we're going to see more long-term stability if we allow a single representative to trigger a leadership election given that the underlying variables aren't going to change so i think i peel off too i I think i'm kind of in the the ken ken buck posture very, very conservative member from colorado who's been with mccarthy but is just just really impatient and thinks he's not going to get over the top and thinks there should be uh, an, an alternative. I think that's where I would be. Uh, so I'd be with you, Phil, searching around, work in the room, twi- twisting arms, listening to everyone, trying to come up with a, with an alternative. So, F- Phil, let's let's stick with the, the merits of McCarthy, and then we'll get in, in a, uh, a separate segment to what this means, whether this is a constitutional crisis, a national crisis, the way some people are portraying it. But there's no way a principled never-Trumper was going to be even at the starting gate of uh, a, a speaker's um, race, right? Um, so, so that's not in the offing. So, is it just that McCarthy was so ham-handed in in the way he's he's done with Trump, and then then you know he he wants to uh, shoot Liz Cheney at, at dawn, or just is this just a broader broader pattern where he's an operator and not an ideological politician, and that's just not you're just not going to be in favor of anyone like that. I mean, I I don't think I think the issue of not being ideological is less of an issue than just 
clearly having no control over his caucus and, and clearly they could just sort of sniff his desperation. Um, he just reeks of it and everyone feels that they could just manipulate him and bend him to their will. I mean, mm-hmm. I have certainly have problems with Mitch McConnell, um, who is sort of obviously tried to navigate the the Trump stuff in an often weaselly way. Mm-hmm. But he does have his certain red lines and pressure points, oftentimes on things that I disagree with him on. Uh, but clearly, he's been able to deliver the caucus, keep it together, oftentimes when he's in both the minority and majority when he's trying to get um, you know, on key judicial votes and so forth. And, and we've been through his record. But the, the problem is that Kevin McCarthy, for his lack of ideology, doesn't really be, seem good at delivering votes, as we're mm-hmm. seeing right now. So the, the core function of being the House Speaker is being able to, to kind of deliver votes. So he's not even able to do that. So even if you stipulate, okay, you're not going to get some ideological person that's going to agree with you on everything and they're that leader he's not even good like all of his sucking up even if you say well you have to indulge and appease the trump wing of the party to some extent to lead the current republican party even that hasn't really gotten him over the top um and so to me that's a real problem he's going to come out of this knowing that either what's going to happen is he ends up as if he ends up as speaker um you're going to have a situation in which either he's relying on some weird maneuver in which he convinces a bunch of people to vote present and mm-hmm. he lowers the threshold so he can't even get 218 votes for his own speaker yeah i don't think he's going to get if he gets it i don't think he's getting with 218 i think yeah. he's getting something short of that yeah, so he's already not getting a majority for um, something that should be a slam dunk vote that has been a slam dunk vote for most of history. Um, and then on top of that, like you know, the other alternative is what he's going to work with Democrats to get them to vote present. Well, Phil, um, doesn't we were, we were texting about this yesterday? So doesn't isn't that what he needs? So so he can't have like chips 10 guys or whatever it is <clears throat> vote present right because he actually needs more votes so, so that would bring down the threshold of what of what you need to get a majority but he'd still be at 200 and hakeem jeffries would be at 212 so he, he it's it seems like he needs democrats to come off the table yeah if everyone's pr- like physically present not voting present as one of the other issues is that several um members have personal life conflicts in the coming days that are so he's already down three votes essentially that way so that hurts the math but basically let's just say everyone's physically in the building who can vote um that he needs to get to 213 jeffries is at 212 so if you think he needs to get um 213 uh, then you have to say that he has to basically convince it's sort of a mix. He has to con- he could convince enough of the if, if he can basically win over 
let's 13 um, ish of the um, holdouts and then get some of them to vote present, he might be able to get an, you know, lower the, the threshold mm-hmm. a lot. It mm-hmm. is, it is sort of a very razor thin situation because if they're, I think it's, you know, um, because they have 222. So if he gets 13 Republicans to vote for him and then like nine are present somehow, but, you know, it's unlikely that, you know, does Gates or Bobart vote present? right? Mm-hmm. Probably yeah. not. And why would yeah. Democrats try to throw a life preserver at, at uh, McCarthy? I mean, one of the things that I pointed out on the corner this morning is that the, the timing of the omnibus, I think, really hurt McCarthy. One, because it kind of galvanized the opposition to try to say, we need to disrupt the status quo, we need all these rules changes and so forth. So it, it likely grew the the base of opposition and hardened their positions, but also it took away any pressure for Democrats to try to bail them out. Because if, let's say, there's no omnibus that passes in December, we're either sitting in a situation in which we're operating under some short-term funding bill, or there's the government is shut down. And in either of those cases the Democrats would know if they want to reopen government or keep government open, they'd have to choose a speaker so they can be sworn in. So there's a higher likelihood that you could get five or 10 Democrats to vote present. But now, I mean, you may as well just, if you're a Democrat, just pass around the popcorn and keep voting for Jeffries. So MBD, what do you make of that critique of of McCarthy? He's supposed to be a vote getter and here he can't get the votes. I, obviously, there's there's force to that. On the other hand, I mean, there are going to be five or six uh, members that are just going to be hard to get for for any speaker. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the the party has a kind of um, a rump to it. Um, it it's not always these twenty, but it's a set of congressmen between I would say five and thirty five who are, you know, no votes to just about everything, right? They are, they are classic. Uh, and, and this has kind of existed in Republican Congresses for a long time. I mean, it used to be, you know, in the nineties, you were looking at like Mark Sanford, Ron Paul, and, you know, other people who would, you know, guys who would vote against the violence against women's act, you mm-hmm. know, um, and take those tough, really tough, you know, all the way out there, libertarian style, no votes. Uh, and that caucus has just grown bigger with every mm-hmm. turn of the populist screw in the Republican party from the tea party to the Trump era. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult for anyone. I mean, I, I think, you know, Boehner lost 25 members of his caucus, but we both had the votes to, uh, be speaker. Um, so yeah, I expect I expect anyone would have trouble uh, and would be yeah. losing uh, votes at the so margin. Char- so Charlie, how do you diagnose uh, this phenomenon where it, it seems as though the Republicans are just a, a less coherent party than Democrats are at the moment? It's, it's impossible to imagine what's been going on now happening to 
Nancy Pelosi, for instance. And I think there's a faction that's it's more, you know, than just Ron Paul. I, I have this principal position where I'm not going to vote for, you know, superficially uh, um, popular and commonsensical legislation um, like the Violence Against Women Act. It's 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 like a deeper opposition to the party as such, certainly to its leaders as such. And I wrote about this 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 week and sort of diagnosed it as one Bush craters on his way out of office, discrediting a, a huge swath of the establishment that backed him uh, for eight years. Then you have the Tea Party, and um, th- there were elements of the Tea Party that just weren't weren't uh, part of the Republican Party to begin with, and kind of had a hostile attitude inherently to it. Not everyone in the Tea Party, but that was part of it. You had 2012 and and the the loss then, which had a deranging impact on the Republican Party, as Dan McLaughlin. Has written about, and then you have the Trump phenomenon that you know he he takes the establishment by the the neck, stomps on it, and creates this kind of uh, counter populist establishment. But uh, w- w- where are you on this phenomenon? Well, I don't think it's a single phenomenon. The ratio between those who have backed McCarthy consistently and those who have held out consistently is ten to one. You have about twenty people who have said no, 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 now 11 times. And within that group of 20, there seem to be quite a few different motivations. There are some people, like Chip Roy, who actually think hard about conservative policy, who think hard about how the House of Representatives works and should work, and are using this nomination fight as a vehicle to level many of the objections that they have held for a while. Then you have figures such as Matt Gates, who seem primarily to be using this as a fundraising mechanism and because they like blowing things up and see politics as performative. And finally, you have people who are representatives from districts in which maybe a majority of voters vote for but hate the Republican Party and think that it's useless and have for many years now blamed all that happens in the country on the fecklessness of Republicans who simply refuse to fight or get their hands dirty, and they're using this moment as a way to convey that they are not going to go along with what they deem business as usual. So I don't think there is really a single phenomenon. It's also worth saying that there is another split in that some of the people here seem to be altruistic in their intentions. But others, if the reporting is to be believed, have been trying to extract concessions that primarily benefit themselves. Mm -hmm. Either a change to the way in which outside groups get involved in elections that would help them and their wing, or perhaps committee assignments that they covered and would never have been given unless they started horse trading. Um, So there's a lot going on in that 
group of 20, which is in the minority, but given that the House has a small Republican majority, uh, has a great deal of leverage. MBD asks a question to you this episode, conclusion of which we uh, remains to be seen, makes you feel better about the Republican Party, worse about the Republican Party, the same about the Republican Party? Um, better about the Republican Party, I think. Um, this is the, the numbers are, are too tight you know, for the, for a big breakthrough right now, but there's a desire here in the Republican conference in evidence, both, I I mean, like there's desire in the majority that are for, of the Republican conference that are for McCarthy to get on and start the investigations and, and start doing congressional business. And there's a desire among the dissenters, particularly in Chip Roy to get a process that allows legislators to legislate and to read the bills before they, they have to vote on them to offer real amendments and to initiate legislation themselves. And I'm excited for that. The future that Chip Roy is pointing towards. And I think this action today is hastening the day when, when a real reform will come through. All right. MBD is a full on Royite. Phil Klein. Better, same, worse? I'd say pretty much the same. I mean, I had a fairly cynical view of things going into this Congress. I didn't expect much will be done and much would come out of it. Um, And I was sort of aware of the cleavages within the Republican Party. I'd say I'm sort of surprised. I assumed that McCarthy had been sucking up to enough people behind the scenes to be able to survive. Um, so I, I guess I was surprised by you that. I thought he was more cynically malleable than, than yeah. he's proven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'd say mostly the same. All right, Charlie. About the same. This incident has reflected the Republican caucus as it exists and as i knew it existed and as such it hasn't especially surprised me yeah i'm also the same i will say i was uh, too um universally harsh uniformly harsh on the the 20 uh, dissenters although i've always liked chip roy but as the the deal has uh, become clear the last couple of days I, I think the these things are um almost all of them are, are worthy or at least not particularly harmful. So I I have more time for about half of these dissenters or maybe a little bit more than I would have expected at the outset. But overall in the Republican Party, same. Yeah. Can I give the devil his due here? Yeah. I I like Matt Gaetz trolling uh, McCarthy about being in in the speaker's office, sending a letter and, you know, saying this guy has lost 11 votes. Why is he in this office? I, I mean, I, I kind of like being a troll stickler on procedure in these things. Um, mm-hmm. I think it shows that I, I think that's healthy, bumptious and democratic in the, in the best tradition of the people's house. So I, I'm going to give Matt Gates credit for that. All right. Stupid and, bit we of have, theater. We have, and we have a favorable, favorable word about Matt Gates too. So with that, let me pause, do a quick plug for NR plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com your way 
around our metered paywall your way if you sign up and log in to see many, many fewer ads your way to dig deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts. You can become part of our Facebook group, private Facebook group. You can get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers, editors, and other conservative thinkers. So great deal all around. Plus... Most importantly, it's a a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you haven't already signed up, please, please, please go uh, right now. Pause this podcast and take take a minute. Sign up for NR Plus. Then you can come back and uh, we'll be uh, delighted and everyone will be happy all around. NR Plus, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers if you're not already a member and sign up up get it done today people so charlie you posted this morning about a comment from um democrat ted Lou about how uh this this represents a terrible crisis we basically don't have a house of representatives right now and how possibly can you have an entire um branch of government not functioning it's hysteria it's cynical hysteria it would obviously be a problem if this continued for a year, but the House is doing here what the House is supposed to do, which is try to find a majority for a given proposition. The given proposition in this case is that Kevin McCarthy should be Speaker, and there is not a majority for that proposition. I've seen Democrats and Republicans saying it's outrageous that 20 people can veto the will of the majority. But of course, that's not what's happened. The vote tallies here are not 20 against everyone else for. It's 20 plus the Democrats who also don't want Kevin McCarthy to be the speaker. As such, there is no majority, and the motion fails, as it does on legislation. I find the way this is being talked about extremely annoying, and I always have. It strikes me as being no different than the complaints, for example, back in 2013, during the shutdown, that a handful of people were holding out against the better interests of the country, or in 2014, when President Obama would say that, of course, all right-thinking people want immigration reform, the House won't do it, therefore he had to. No. The House gets to decide what it does. And there is not a majority in this case. Now, the reason I find Ted Lieu particularly annoying is that Ted Lieu talks as if he doesn't have a vote. If you are Chip Roy, you have a consistent position. Whether you agree with Chip Roy or not, his position is consistent. That position is, this is a serious question. It's not a crisis or a problem for it to be spread out over time. And he is going to dig his heels in until he gets his own way or loses. Ted Lieu's position is that we are in the midst of a crisis. The House can't do oversight. The House can't look at intelligence briefings. There is no House. There's no branch of government, Ted Lieu says. Well, does that mean he's going to vote for McCarthy? No, it doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't want McCarthy. So how's he different than Chip Roy? He's not, except he thinks it's a problem, and Chip Roy doesn't. If Ted Lieu really believed that we were in the midst of a crisis, if he really believed that the absence of a functioning House of Representatives was a long-term issue that threatened the national security of the country. He could resolve this in a minute. 
He could vote present if he doesn't want to affirmatively vote for McCarthy, or he could vote for McCarthy, and we would have a House of Representatives, providing, of course, he could convince 20 of his colleagues to do the same thing. But given the quotes they've been giving to the press about how much of a problem this supposedly is, if they really believe that, that shouldn't be impossible. My point here is that this is not some aberration. It is not some crisis. It is not a catastrophe. It is a democratic legislature doing what democratic legislatures are supposed to do, which is fight and argue and debate and horse trade until a majority can be found. And the fact that I personally am not especially invested in it or that I personally on balance would vote for McCarthy and move on does not change that Mm -hmm. one bit. Yeah, so so Phil, there is a, a version of Charlie's argument, um, m- maybe made um, taken a, a slight step further, or, or basically the same. This is this is democracy, and this is a a good thing. We've had this uh, oligarchic Congress where everything happens behind closed doors, and, and Nancy Pelosi just lays down the law, and everyone has to march in, in lockstep. Th- this is a, um, a, a a welcome small D democratic alternative uh, to that, and, uh, and no no one should be worried about this in the least. Yeah, I mean, I think that the I think that all of those things are right, but it's it's sort of more complicated than that. It could be they could be right about that, but there all could also could be consequences at some point, right? There are trade offs to having a more powerful leadership versus not having it and having it so that any one or a small number of people could tank everything down. Um, and so sometimes people, there is an advantage to people kind of falling in line behind something, but there is also an advantage to saying, look, the leader is one vote and we shouldn't be in a situation in which it's the end of the year. They haven't done anything. Nobody's debated any of the spending. And then we're just going to slap together a 4,000 page bill and say, you have to vote for this entire bill mm-hmm. or else, you know, the military doesn't have money and all of these things that you care about don't have money and the government's going to have to shut down and so forth. Um, I mean, the, That's the a bit budget, of a jump there, the, isn't it? They've only the been doing it four days. To be written and passed by April, and the end of the fiscal year isn't till the end of September. So there is plenty of time to actually debate spending and go through committee and so forth. And the critics are right that this is a problem. And in terms of, you know, does this is this sort of some sort of crisis? I mean, that's absurd. It's, I mean, I tweeted out the other day that basically if the House just did nothing else but hold speaker votes for the next several months, in terms of practical effects, things that are actually becoming law, it would have almost zero practical effect. I mean, particularly as conservatives, I mean, with Biden as president, the whole point of having a Republican House is that nothing big can happen, nothing can get done. And so I think in that sense, it doesn't really make a difference if they're just voting on speaker. 
Now, eventually, at some point, I mean, I'm there's going to be a debt ceiling vote, and I'm of the belief that spending and you know I've been ba- pounding on the table for years and years about Republicans cutting spending, but I think that you know, just deciding to take the stand at a debt ceiling is a bad idea, um, and just saying we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. The time to do it is when you're actually in power and could reduce spending. Whereas when Republicans, Republicans in 2011, they've used the debt ceiling as leverage to fight for caps that they then undid when Trump was in office and they had full control of Washington. Um, so to me, I have, um, you know, I've kind of mixed views on whether or not this is great things. I think they're, some things that are good and some things are bad, but it's it certainly, we're certainly not in the midst of a crisis because we've gone three days without a Speaker of the House in a House that's not going to be able to accomplish anything. So, MBD, what's your read on how long this can go on without um, extracting political damage from Republicans? Clearly, I mean, CNN has not been so excited about a story since. January 6th, right? I mean, they, they just l- love this. And they're all very, very concerned and deeply troubled about it and, and love, love, love uh, talking about it and, and covering it. It is a compelling political story, right? Something we haven't seen in 100 years. But do you think Republicans are paying a price now? And when, when would they pay a price? Um, I think they have another week, week or so to go um, before it becomes a kind of memorable, you know, touchstone moment of Republicans in disarray where it looks like, you know, cause one of the, one of the political, one of the politically treacherous um, spots for Republicans right now is just looking like the crazy party, right? Because they yeah. had Donald Trump as president right? and there's a kind of, you know, like I said, you know, there's a carnival barker, um, you know, like scam, scammy, you know, like buy gold and, and, uh, hair loss pills. I don't know, image that is attached to the right. Uh, mm-hmm. and this somehow like also adds to it like this. Hello. Hello. Well, yeah. When, when, when Matt Gates is, is, is getting a lot of airtime, you know, you worry, uh, <laughs> as a, a Republican. So, uh, even if I think he's right on the on the speaker thing, um, so yeah, I, I I think they've got another week. Uh, if it if it's like prolonged, where people are like, oh, we're worried about losing a month of congressional business, then it's it's bad mm-hmm. for Republicans. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say about a week as well. So Charlie, ex a question to you. Um, building on what Phil was saying, let's flash forward, I guess, to this summer. When the debt limit will will be up, you would expect in the House the conclusion of the debt limit debate to be a messy success where Republicans have, have created some um, be- benchmark policy changes they, they want and managed to achieve them. Nothing transformative, but something. Or a messy surrender where they uh, set, set goals and perhaps are overly ambitious and then just have to back down and get nothing or a total debacle? I think it'll be a messy success because even if Republicans don't get anything other than a news cycle, 
I think being seen to stand up against overspending and profligacy, even if they don't follow through on it and are generally full of it, is a positive. I think that if this speaker fight goes on too long, it will start to hurt Republicans. Mm-hmm. I don't think having a reputation as the party that supposedly cares about spending and debt. I understand that the debt ceiling is a separate question mm-hmm. from spending, but I don't think most people watching it necessarily do. Uh, I don't think that's a, a bad thing. So I, I think so, so just probably, the, the act of showing they care about it, you think will be a success. Well, saying they care about it, they're pretty bad right. once they actually have control of the Yeah, exactly. Treasury. Yeah, I, I noted the word supposedly care about. Yeah. All right, so a messy I, success. Yeah. yeah. Phil, um, messy success, messy surrender, debacle. I'd say debacle. Um, I think, I mean, I wrote something about this earlier this week. I, I think that what's going to happen is that, it, especially after this, whoever emerges as speaker is going to come away with, if not in writing, uh, understanding, understood promise that they're going to use the debt ceiling as leverage to try to extract concessions for Democrats. However, Democrats are still um, bitter about what happened in 2011 and the left has convinced the party that that was a huge mistake for uh, Obama to consider that the idea of making any concessions, they view it as if you want to be responsible, you know, in government, you have to just raise the debt ceiling. It's not something that you get something in exchange for doing. And so that is going to be the Democratic position. I don't see them giving any concessions. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to have a situation similar to 2008, which is that the Republicans will demand concessions, Democrats won't give way, and then the market is going to completely melt down. Because right now... There's a certain point at which markets essentially are all based on expectations. So the expectation that markets have are that at some point, you know, all the parties are going to be screaming at each other, but at some point at the 11th hour, there will be some sort of deal. Um, Now, unlike with the government shutdown, with the debt ceiling, there's no clear it's not as clear of just an obvious cliff where something expires. Um, but at some point, it's going to have, there's, it's going to force the issue. And the market is going to say this is worse and more protracted than we thought. And there is going to be a massive panic in the market. And that's going to start freaking people out. And it's going to start freaking donors out. And People are going to say you have to cut some sort of deal and McCarthy or whoever the Republican speaker is, is going to cut some sort of deal and pass something with Democratic support and possibly get deposed um, yeah. and suffer. So, yeah, this, uh, this could be a, a six month gig for who, who McCarthy or, yeah. or whoever else. MBD, we got a, a messy success, a, a debacle. Where are you? Debacle. We'll breach, 
Yeah, we'll probably breach it, I think, in the end. Um, before it's resolved. And that might be costly. So that's what I think will happen. Yeah, I would say debacle followed by a, a messy surrender and just the the just the way it's set up. And and this is where the McCarthy thing especially drags on a little bit here. It just it just sets in everyone's mind of Republicans being the unreasonable ones, which does not um, serve them very well in any sort of shutdown fight or a fight over uh, the debt ceiling. So uh, I am not uh, optimistic about it with that. Speaking of debacles, MBD, I think we had a concession from Joe Biden that actually the border is something that he just can't look away from uh, anymore. He, he has to address He's going to uh, go there and next week, I guess, to El Paso. And we're, again, we're recording Friday morning. He gave a speech yesterday outlining the administration's vision for an alternative to Title 42. They're going to continue to use it, although they're not making much use of it as, as long as it's still standing. But th they have this scheme, basically, that that uh, largely involves, even though the pro-immigrant groups are, are screaming about it, largely involves legalizing <clears throat> as much of the current flow of illegal immigrants as they can. What they're basically saying is, please don't show up uh, at, at the, the border and cross illegally, because what we're going to do is if you download this app on your phone and you apply and you have a sponsor and you, you check a few other boxes, we're just going to let you in legally. <laughs> I think it's uh, for two years, you get a work permit. Of course, once they're here, they're not going to leave. No one's going to make them leave. And um, the, the way this works is, is you know, you, you come here and you're working in a suburb of Boston. You, you tell your the rest of your family, your network back home. Hey, I'm here in Boston, and they come, and uh, you know they overtop the numbers of of uh, legal slots that are available, and you get the same uh, situation. So unless they're really serious about expelling everyone who's you know um, coming in any other manner, which I don't think they they are, th this this is a way just to kind of switch around the accounting and have have um, fewer people at at the border, but just as many or more getting in. Right, yeah, it's it's literally like let's let's clean up the mess at the border because it's unsightly, and then just regularize the flow, which has the the, the terrible downstream effects anyway of creating a giant source of illegal labor in the economy, a giant source of of people who are afraid to turn into law enforcement when they are victims of crimes. Um, uh, this is this is not good. Um, I also fear that like what the what he's kind of signaling on asylum is is a is a disaster in waiting. I mean, there's there's a way of of signaling to people. Uh, you know, if you say, "Well, we need to hire more judges and we need to get these resources in place," there's still a way for the United States to kind of put signals out there that you should come here with uh, bogus asylum claims that will still overwhelm the system, no matter how big you, no matter how large you make it. And, you know, and there's a kind of laxity built in, right. Of like, we're not actually following up on court dates. We're not actually uh, expelling people who fail to meet these criteria. So I, I just think it's just a new, a, a new packaging for negligence. And, Republicans need to call it out for what it is. Uh, 
And conservative journalists need to also like get out there and take the pictures of the planes flying people around or people coming through mm-hmm. customs who have no right to be here um, to expose the system for what it is. I mean, uh, the country is is the country is not going to be able to tolerate. You know, the pace that we're seeing at the border now is th- at least three million crossings a year. I mean, you can't just regularize that by diverting it through the airports mm-hmm. uh, and expect the country to hold together for 10 years. I mean, it's, that's a massive change. It's going to be felt in every emergency room at every public school at every mm-hmm. site of, of civic uh, engagement. And um, it's a disaster. So Charlie, what's your read on why Biden gave the speech and why he's going to the border? I think you put it well. He's realized that he can't look away any longer, which raises the question of why he was trying to in the first place. It's a dereliction of duty. He took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and we have immigration laws. And he hasn't wanted to enforce them. And now he has at least felt a need to be seen to address the issue or pretend to enforce them. I broadly agree with Michael on this. Michael has his phrase, Republican control. I think that Democrats in the modern era, it certainly wasn't true 30, 40 years ago, have recognized that this is a liability and will move to triangulate when they perceive themselves to be in political danger, but otherwise not at all. It seems to me that this is this is unsustainable for Biden because the the numbers and the images are so dramatic now that there's not really a solid counter argument that he can offer. So, Phil, this also involves another layer of lawlessness. There, there's the way the administration has been ignoring. The immigration laws. If you come across the the border and claim asylum, you're supposed to be held uh, under the the immigration statutes until your uh, claim is, is adjudicated, and that's not happening. And then there's a, an enormous abuse of what so called parole, which these thirty thousand people a month are going to be paroled in. And my understanding is parole has been a, a, a rare thing for exceptional cases, you know, you you live in Honduras and, you know, your sister is in the United States and she is gravely ill and you need to get in, you know, and you have no right to be here or come here, but we're going to let you in. Uh, someone, I haven't looked this up myself, so grain of thought, uh, salt, but an immigration expert was was uh, mentioning an example to me the other day of we had a Russian cosmonaut um, who was on the space shuttle and it landed somewhere in the United States and he didn't have a visa. So he was paroled into the, the United States. So these are the kind of one-off uses that have been made of parole <clears throat> traditionally. And, and now it's, it's going to be expanded on a massive basis. It's a lot like the, the student loan where they're using this, this helps act, which was clearly meant for, you know, one-off cases. You're a Marine uh, deployed to Fallujah and you can't pay off your, your student loan in a timely manner. Okay, we're going to make some accommodation for you. That's been extended to millions of people. And the same way, uh, th- this parole is going to be extended to hundreds of thousands of people. 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, Biden, when he took office, he had a fundamental problem, which is, I mean, if you watched any of the Democratic primary debates, it was pretty clear that among Democrats, you can't get away with any border enforcement, just the way that the power of the left um, has within the party. um, That's the case. So Biden gets in and there's this surge of people at the border who understandably um, are motivated to come by the fact that all of these statements from Biden-Harris talking about how America is now going to be a welcoming place for uh, immigrants and for asylum seekers. Um, And so then it causes the natural consequences, which is the border crisis. But at the same time, you can't do any of the things that you'd normally do to try to reduce the border crisis because those are unacceptable. So obviously, after trying to ignore it for a while and claim it was seasonal, the only option that they saw uh, is to try to use some sort of executive argument uh, on yet another issue to try to say, okay, we're just going to let more people on in. And like you say, just sort of essentially reduce some of the images of the, the massive pileups and crowds at the border while not really dealing with the underlying problem. And Of course, this all relates to a broader problem, which is that whichever side you're on on the immigration debate, everyone pretty much agrees that the current immigration laws need to be changed. Now, some people would argue they need to be loosened. Some people say they need to be tightened. But the bottom line is that there there needs to be legislative changes to this. But we never get the legislative changes because of the politics of immigration. So the unfortunate situation is that we're going from executive, you know, from presidency to presidency with various dueling executive actions um, that are trying to paper over the the problems that, you know, the more fundamental problems at the border that ultimately require legislative solutions. So MBD, outside of the merits or legalities of this Biden plan, it will remove at least a a little pressure at the border and therefore help them at least at the margins politically on this issue, yes or no? (sighs) Um, I'm I'm worried it's no. I'm I'm worried that in a way it's just the message that will be received down the line is we're still open for business. Um, and so people will keep showing up even irregularly, even when they're given this uh, regular, regularized illegal path in. Charlie. Um, no, it's not real. It's PR. Do we got a no? A no? Phil Klein? I think it will help him marginally politically on the issue in the very short term in terms of saying, well, I did something, so let's see how it works. But you know, as we get into you know, the election and this policy has been in place for over a year and it clearly isn't working, um, it's going to be a big problem because it's going to be a bigger problem in the long run because people will be able to say, 
you release this plan and it hasn't resolved the issue. So I'm also a a no. So they point to the experience of Venezuelans. They created kind of a pilot version of this program with Venezuelans and saw the the percentage of Venezuelans showing up in the apprehended numbers decline somewhat. But it's it's not clear that uh, um, Venezuelans just didn't go into the the flow of so-called gotaways. These are people coming across the border who don't present themselves to immigration authorities. I mean, this is a bizarre thing. We have illegal immigrants coming into the country, and then they try to find (laughs) border patrol agents to say, hey, I'm surrendering and claiming asylum because they know they'll get in. Um, So there has been a surge of these gotaways and the, the the prior um, population that was getting appre- apprehended just may may have gone over into uh, gotaways, and also the, the administration is talking a brave game. They're going to use more um, this process called ex- expedited removal, where you kick you're kicked out right away. But there's this huge loophole in expedited removal. If you claim credible fear of persecution back home, you can't use it, and the percentage of people who are saying they have credible fear has skyrocketed over the last. 10 years, everyone's kind of, kind of figured it out. And I ex- expect that number to, to keep in increasing. And so expedited removal, not, not be much of a factor, even if it appears in the DHS talking points. So I'm also a no with that. Let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you actually watched downfall, the, the movie about the last days of, of Nazi Germany, and Hitler, which uh, most of us are familiar with because it is is the occasion for a bunch of uh, kind of tired now um, uh, memes and, and bad voiceovers. Yeah, I, I watched Downfall this week and it's I mean, it's hardly like a light item in, in its way, mm-hmm. but it is actually an astonishing film. And the Swiss actor Bruno Gans who plays Hitler is absolutely spellbinding and and terrifying uh, in portraying Hitler's menace, his, and especially in this late kind of drug addled Parkinson's afflicted uh, state. Um, But it, it, it's a horrifying uh, portrayal of, of what I read in, in the great history book, the German war by Nicholas Stuttgart, which, um, at the end talks about these final days in, in Berlin, where there's a pervasive sense both popularly and among the government that this fate has been brought down on them by themselves. And in a sense, they deserve to lose. They deserve the horrors that the red army is about to inflict on all of them. And, and that the Nazi contempt for the weak is kind of turned inward in, in an orgy of suicide and contempt. And it's absolutely horrifying to watch um, with the price it extracts from uh, the German people themselves. It's, it's an incredible film. Hmm. So Phil on a, uh, a lighter note, but still not necessarily a happy note. You are, you're looking to this, uh, two month long period, whatever it is where the football season is going to end because the Jets are going to miss out on the playoffs again. And then it's a long wait until spring training and the regular baseball season begins. Yeah. It's, it's always my sports interregnum because, um, I sort of lost interest in basketball one first because, uh, I used to be a big Knicks fan and Dolan ruined the Knicks. And then, 
the uh, NBA's embrace of China just made me disillusioned with following the broader league. So I kind of phased out basketball fandom, which was usually the bridge. And so now I have this gap once the Jets are eliminated, which, I mean, they played meaningful games in December this year. So it wasn't the normal, you know, mid-fall um, end of the season for me. Um, so I guess I'll watch some fun wildcard games and then um, it'll just be waiting for spring training. So um, I've been reading more. I just uh, started <laughs> reading uh, Gone with the Wind, which I've you know, seen the movie obviously a dozen times, but I never read the book. So it's kind of fun to see the backstory of some of the books and see how it, just, it just, was, just, just think what a literary maven you'd be if you weren't a baseball fan. I know, I know. <laughs> if I didn't spend hours and hours every night on the, the Yankees. With, you know, with baseball, it's like, I know this game doesn't matter. Right? It's one of 162, but I'm still standing here at 1130, like watching the, the final Yankee at-bats. At Charlie, you saw the movie Glass Onion and liked it. I did like it. I was scrolling through Twitter this morning and everyone I saw discussing it on my timeline hated it or oh, was derisive or was talking about so, the, what what is it by the way? It's the second movie in the Knives Out series. It has Daniel Craig who plays a detective called Benoit Blanc. And this one is set on the island of a eccentric billionaire who owns a rocket company, but it's apparently not supposed to be we're led to believe Elon Musk. <laughs> Anyhow, I accept that it's full of holes, but I enjoyed it. I'm not especially sophisticated when it comes to movies. So just the visual spectacle and the, the fun of it was enough for me. If anyone else is interested in watching it, it's on Netflix. So sticking with the football theme, I've been considering purchasing a signed piece of memorabilia uh, from uh, the Houston Oiler great Billy White Shoes Johnson, punt return specialist way back uh, in the day, also a wide wide receiver. So I really didn't know that much about Billy White Shoes Johnson except for the basics. I was looking him up last night. Uh, incredible career, incredible guy. The, the highlights are just amazing. You know, I watched a, a documentary about Fran Tarkington, who is sort of the, the first scrambling quarterback for the Vikings a couple of years ago, I think it was on the SEC network. And Tarkington was incredible. He, he'd run, you know, from one sideline and then the other, and then back 15 yards and then almost uh, to the line of scrimmage again. And he wouldn't run and tiptoe, you know, for the first down the way scrambling quarterbacks do now. He, he'd launch a 40 yard pass, you know, he'd complete on a dime. And, and Johnson, his punt returns also, you know, now, um, very, very. Uh, it seems like the art of punt returning is not what it, it used to be. I guess the defense is better, except for the Jets, uh, Phil, uh, on that that notable punt return they gave up earlier in the season. But you know, the, the returner tries to just jet through, break one tackle, and then then hope hope for a lane. Johnson, he was like dancing all around, you know, run from one sideline to the other. And uh, his one of his iconic plays uh, was when he was the Atlanta Falcons. He got hurt. With the Oilers, went and played in Canada for a season, then then came back and was still um, quite good 
for the the Falcons. And there's this game against the 49ers when they're down a couple points and run out of time, the two seconds left. They had to do the Hail Mary. And uh, Hail Mary you know, comes to the, the goal line and is batted down by a 49er um, defender. And, and Johnson just sort of picks it up, you know, off his shoelaces, makes the catch. And he's like five yards out. And there are a bunch of 49, uh, 49er defenders, and he has to go retreat almost to the 10-yard line. And you're looking like there's no way. There's no way he's getting into the end zone. And lo and behold, he makes it into the end zone. I, I'm sort of glad this, this play happened prior to the era of instant replay because he didn't, he didn't really make it into the end zone. He's clearly down before the goal line. There was a hesitation where the referees didn't, didn't call the touchdown right away. But anyway, just an amazing Amazing play, an incredible athlete, and also a total shrimp. You know, a lot of people discounted him when he came to the league because he was just just five five nine. You know, really really petite uh, football player. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Armand White's annual better than list, where he goes through the movies of the pre- previous year and says which ones were better than the others. Often it, it creates interesting contrasts and uh, Armand White is the, the only, only film critic in America who has cultivated a unique sensibility and taste and one that isn't afraid of, to rub you the wrong way. So read him. Phil, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is the Uval piece that we've spoken about um, a couple times, the longer term stakes of the speaker fight. Um, I don't know if it will necessarily pan out exactly the way he uh, outlines, but Yuval always kind of makes you think and reconsider your positions. And he lays out the case that, you know, despite all the the sort of, um, you know, chaos and, and some of the fact that, you know, you have not all these people who are trying to force change, are necessarily acting in totally good faith that it, some of the reforms to the budget process and rules process and the, the role of the speaker could be good. And that sometimes these sort of um, it takes these sort of disruptive chaotic moments to force some lasting change. And so I think it's, it's sort of, it's worth reading. Charlie, my pick is a piece by Dominic Pino. I read at length from Dominic's corner post on this topic on my podcast, uh, which is out today. But Dominic's expanded the corner post in question into a whole piece, arguing that what we're seeing in Congress is a legislator, uh, legislature working, as it's supposed to do. And yes, it's messy, but that's because legislatures are messy, unlike our penchant for presidential decree, we have to balance, weigh, take into account all sorts of different views inside a legislature because there's so many different people uh, within them. And Dominic argues that this isn't a crisis. This is Congress as it's supposed to work and as it will hopefully work more in the future. So my pick is a Charlie Post uh, with quotes, quotes around it. Did we win? This is the, the, the question <clears throat> that um, uh, Damar Hamlin uh, supposedly uh, reportedly 
asked um, when he was uh, began writing. Thank God, he actually does seem to be doing better when he was writing out some questions for his his family and and folks folks around him. And there's just amazingly been sort of a tisk tisking attitude towards this. You know, not not quite how dare he, but <laughs> that's sort of the implication of it uh, from from these po- folks who just think it's terrible that anyone would think about completing that game or anyone would think about the consequences for for the season. But DeMar Hamlin is a professional athlete and a football player. And, of course, this is uh, one of the first things he would be wondering about. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, MBD. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.